This is episode 108 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Losing the Local News. This episode is part of our series on journalism and journalists. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am delighted to welcome two new guests to the show today from PEN America. And PEN America is a nonprofit organization that works to defend and celebrate free expression in the United States and worldwide through the advancement of literature and human rights. And my uh, two guests today are Nora Benavides. She's the director of PEN America's U.S. Free Expression Programs, where she guides the organization's national advocacy agenda, working with writers, litigators, and activists to defend press freedom, where journalists are targeted for their work to combat disinformation, which threatens to erode engagement in democratic institutions, to support protest rights and the ability of dissenting voices to speak up, and to fight back against forms of censorship that chill writers. Benavidez is a lawyer by training, and prior to joining PEN America, she worked as a civil and human rights litigator. Victoria Vilk is the Program Director for Digital Safety and Free Expression at PEN America, where she leads digital safety initiatives for writers and journalists and was one of the principal authors of the report, Losing the News, which is the topic of our discussion today. She has over a decade of experience working in nonprofits to expand access to the arts and defend creative and press freedom. And the report that we're talking about today, which I highly recommend, and I'll link to it in the show notes, is called Losing the News, the Decimation of Local Journalism and the Search for Solutions. So welcome to the show, Nora and Victoria. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having us. We, sad to say, are recording this episode in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And maybe you'd start off for us to talk a little bit about the distinction between local coverage and national coverage. Sure. Well, Jennifer, just thank you so much again for having us. We're really excited to have this conversation. And I think it's a, you know, a very surreal moment that we are all in right now. Feels like it. Oh, it, it's very weird. I mean, I don't know about you, but even just being digital <laughs> is a surreal transition. But mm-hmm. As we're seeing, you know, the coronavirus play out, especially in the United States, one of the actually really interesting side effects is the way people are turning to news. Mm -hmm. They're turning to their local outlets, um, national outlets, and they're, they're looking to, I think, receive some kind of guidance, whether it's, you know, to be educated and informed about the health aspects and sort of science behind what's going on, how they might be needing to adapt their attitudes and behaviors in light of coronavirus and whatever our local <clears throat> community leaders are implementing for public safety. And one of the 
interesting side effects now in all of this is how newsrooms are pivoting. And they've been tremendous. We have seen, you know, outlets, I think really rightly so, taking down their paywalls so that people can have free and immediate access to information and reporting in their communities. And it's really commendable. I mean, I think from the outset, we need to acknowledge that we already have been in a crisis where the local news uh, ecosystem is suffering. But with the cancellation of events, with the postponement of activities around various communities in the United States, all of the ad revenue from those um, events is now dwindling, which Mm -hmm. means that one of the financial support systems that those local outlets were receiving, they're not getting anymore. And so it just sort of brings home that, you know, we're already seeing an economically struggling landscape for reporters and for local outlets. But this is now compounding that problem as they are just being decimated by the lack of advertising revenue. And so a few things are happening, which just sort of ground us in this moment that I think you know, news outlets are really suffering and they're suffering in, in just new ways. I mean, they're they're closing. They are oftentimes now cutting their publication cycles, going from, let's say, uh, reporting and publishing every week to only every other week or going from publishing multiple times a week to only once a week. We've seen that outlets are laying off staff. I mean, it's really just sort of what was once something we classified at PEN America when we released our report as a a legitimate crisis now feels like it is really honing in on something even much more troubling. And so, uh, you know, it's just in this moment, people need information and they need news. And so on the one hand, it's really inspiring that all of our outlets are meeting that demand and they, they're really putting people's health and safety first, but it is creating this absolute crisis for them financially. Well, can you give us some facts and figures about what has happened to the news between the period of 2005 and 2010, or or even more recently, uh, just to give our listeners a sense of the crisis that you're describing? Absolutely. I I would say that even before uh, the pandemic hit, the situation was pretty alarming in terms of the health and welfare of local news outlets. Uh, In the last 15 years, Newspapers alone have lost almost 50% of their staff. Over 2,000 newspapers across the country, local newspapers have closed. Of the 7,000 or so that are still around, at least 1,000 could be called ghost papers. In other words, they've been so damaged by cutbacks that they're producing very little original reporting. Mm. And that's because the entire industry is losing billions of dollars in ad revenue and newspapers alone have lost $35 billion in ad revenue in the last 15 years. So the situation is is pretty stark. Your report that you've written is really very impressive in terms of all the research that's included in there and the studies, uh, the uh, research studies and also some really interesting case studies. So can you give the listeners kind of an overview of, of what the report is is comprised of? Absolutely. And thank you so much for your kind words about the report. I mean, we spent over a year talking to dozens of reporters, media experts. Wow. 
you know, we basically talked to everyone and their mother about this report when we were working <laughs> on it. Uh, and we sort of grew increasingly alarmed as we were working on it. We thought initially we were going to be writing about news deserts, you know, handfuls of places in the country where there's not a single newspaper left. And then we realized as we were working on this report that this was a systemic problem mm-hmm. that was happening in rural communities, small towns, mid-sized cities, and major metropolitan cities alike. So, you know, what we, the conclusion we came to is that Local news really plays an indispensable role in American civic life as a trusted source of critical information and a building block for social cohesion. And we're seeing that right now during the pandemic more than ever. It's also a cornerstone for democracy, which serves as a driver for civic engagement and a watchdog for government integrity. The problem, though, is that local news is in crisis, as we've just been saying. So there's been a steady succession of outlets even before the pandemic, closing down, reporters being laid off, publication schedules cut, resources tightened. And it's because the business model for local news has basically collapsed. Mm. And what's happening now in the face of the pandemic is that it's essentially facing a mass extinction event. Um, And that's really bad news for communities and for our democracy. There were already thousands of communities across the country with reduced access to vital information that they need. And that's about to get a lot worse. And so what we argue is that it's time to really radically rethink local journalism, not just as a commercial product, which it is, but also as a public good. Mm -hmm. And its revitalization is actually going to require concerted action from the media industry, from tech giants, philanthropists, and the government all working in tandem, and from the public, too. There are some really interesting examples in the report. I, as part of this series on journalists and journalism, I interviewed New York beat reporter Michael Jacarino, and he commented during the podcast, there are no watchers anymore, which I thought was an uh, interesting turn of phrase. And in your report, Losing the News, you tell this really kind of shocking story about city workers' wages in Bell, California. Can you summarize that for us and how it was finally exposed? Sure. Well, um, you know, I'm from Los Angeles, I have to say, and I'm so glad that you're asking this question. I think that what happened in Bell, California, um, it's a city right right outside of Los Angeles, um, was really kind of jarring. And as often as we could, um, you know, one of the things we tried to do with the report was spotlight what really happens in practice when there is just a dearth of coverage and all of the the sort of host of things that then fall in a domino effect because of that. Yeah. Um, In many ways, I think it really helps to bring home for people that the power of news is not some abstract concept or something that journalists and the media alone should be touting. So let me just, I'll give you a few of the very brief broad strokes of what we saw and, um, and what happened in Bell, because it goes back to 2005. Their city council held a special election back in 2005 to vote on a measure that would convert Bell into what was called a quote unquote charter city. Um, which sounded relatively innocuous at some level, Um, you know, almost nice. You know, you might think, oh, is that a charter school or something that was protecting people? Um, Special. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, they did it in order actually to get around this statewide cap in California on salaries of city council members. And people in Bell barely heard about the measure. So it passed without very much fanfare. Um, You know, it was years went by, frankly, and city council members, their salaries obviously started skyrocketing because they were no longer beholden to that statewide cap on salaries. 
Um, the city manager, for example, was making 800000 It's incredible. I know. I mean, it's, it's really wild. The police chief was making 450000 One of the, the, just as a comparison, the median household income in Bell at that time was 25000 Oh, my. So, you know, I mean, I think all of us can recognize that that was shocking, but there were just not enough local news outlets operating at the time in Bell. And so what we were seeing was local newspapers had closed years earlier. And it was not really until journalists in L.A., L.A. proper at the L.A. Times got wind of what was going on. That wasn't for five years. Mm-hmm. So the vote happened in 20, uh, 2005. It wasn't until 2010 that the L.A. Times, Jeff Gottlieb, actually was able to then break the story. And it's it's just indicative of all of the ways that but for reporters, you know, were not being able to hold leaders accountable in a lot of ways. Um, and so it just, frankly, as an Angelino, I felt a kind of sense of pride that we were able to shine a light on that story, but it's happening and has been happening now over the last more than a decade across the country. I think there's a belief that newspapers are collapsing for want of readership, that people just aren't interested in reading newspapers anymore. At least that's sometimes what you hear people say as an explanation for what's happened. But you actually found something different. Tell us what you found. So that's actually, it's a myth that there's declining interest in news. What we found is that circulation for print newspapers is declining because we, you know, we all have gone digital. But online, there's a lot of interest in local outlets. And in fact, what's happening right now with the pandemic really debunks that myth. Local news outlets, their websites are seeing the highest visitation they have ever seen in this last week, while they are at the same time dropping their paywalls in order to do the right thing so that people can get coverage for free while their ad revenue is tanking, you know, as local businesses shutter and events are canceled and the stock market's, you know, plummeting. And it's because, you know, what I think people don't totally understand is that beat reporting, investigative reporting, it costs money. It's very, very costly to produce. And historically, it's been subsidized by ad revenue, much more than readership or circulation, right? The rise of the internet has taken, you know, its toll because there are websites like Craigslist and Monster that have taken all the classified ads away from papers. Now there are search engines and social media platforms that are cannibalizing the ad revenue that used to go to local news outlets. And so what we're actually seeing is a collapse of the business model that used to pay for watchdog reporting, but is no longer paying for that service. So you also write in the report how Google and Facebook have uh, changed the ad revenue streams. Tell us about that. Right. So, you know, as I mentioned, a big part of newspapers' profits, or not just newspapers, actually, most news outlets' profits has been ad revenue. And as people have shifted online, more and more of that advertising is happening digitally, which is fine. The amount of money being spent overall on ads in the United States has increased for a decade. The problem is that most of that money is now being siphoned off by Facebook and Google and other major tech platforms. It's something like 77% of digital ad revenue now goes to Facebook and Google in local markets. 
So they're making money off of content that they don't actually spend money to produce. So when you see articles on Facebook, Twitter, or Google, there are ads that appear alongside those articles, right? Because tech companies are so good at tracking our data and frankly, violating our privacy a lot of the time. You know, other companies prefer to advertise on tech company platforms first and foremost, because they can target people, right, with ads much more specifically. There are still companies that advertise directly on the websites of news outlets, but much less than they did before. And those ads are worth a lot less money. This, so does that make sense? Does that help kind of explain the how, how the, where the, the system is broken down or is breaking down? Yeah, it almost feels like a perfect storm, like so many things. Yeah. There are some moving parts that are all coming together to really squash squash the local news. That is exactly the right description of what's happening. It is a perfect storm um, from all sides. And and I think we are in this moment can see so clearly that we need local news desperately. And yet there's a perfect storm that's actually decimating it just when we need it the most. Tell us about ownership of media by what you refer to as benevolent billionaires and also Sinclair Broadcasting. So I think it's actually really important to make a distinction between benevolent billionaires and Sinclair Broadcasting because they're kind of two different phenomena. Sinclair is part of a massive wave of media consolidation that's been sweeping the industry. So TV, radio, newspapers, all of the industry for decades. When the business model started to fall apart, media companies started to buy out local papers for bargain basement prices and really consolidate them to streamline costs. It's happening not just with Sinclair, it's happening with Gatehouse Gannett, many other big outlets, or rather companies, conglomerates. Consolidation will often lead to coverage that's less local, less diverse, and in some cases, much more politically polarized. And Sinclair is the most egregious example of that. Sinclair is the largest uh, owner of TV stations in the entire country. They reach over 40% of American households. And their chairman has actually said publicly, out loud, to the Trump administration that he that they are here to deliver the Trump administration's message. That's literally what he said, we're here to deliver your message. And one way that they did that is these segments called must runs. So in their headquarters, national headquarters, they would write these short segments and then they would basically force local TV anchors to say the segments verbatim at the same time all across the country, which is really unsettling and creepy. And it's so people are sitting at home watching their beloved trusted local TV anchors saying words that their TV anchors are not comfortable saying and didn't write on behalf of this, you know, massive media company that they don't even realize owns their local TV station. So that is kind of what's happening with media consolidation. Benevolent billionaires are sort of a different part of the, you know, landscape. And I can talk about those if you want me to, but it's kind of different things. Oh, yeah, no, please do. So benevolent billionaires, you know, (laughs) It's a mixed bag, right? Because on the one hand, there have been major papers that have literally been saved from destruction by billionaires purchasing them. So the alternative right now is that either you're purchased by some massive conglomerate that then might do what Sinclair is doing. It might not, but it could. Or you're purchased by a billionaire. And we, you know, we say benevolent because it's pretty difficult right now to make a profit in the news industry. It's not impossible. And there are outlets that are actually doing really well, but it's difficult and you have to invest a lot of money. And so very few billionaires want to take the risk. And those that have, um, have really helped salvage outlets like the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the Boston Globe, uh, 
there are several more. I mean, obviously, the Washington Post is a really prominent example. The San Diego Union Tribune and the LA Times, those have all been purchased by billionaires. And those billionaires are investing a lot of money to try to keep those outlets afloat. Hmm. The problem is that if you have really strong firewalls, right, ensuring editorial independence, you're in good shape. But what happens when your benevolent billionaire somebody like Sheldon Adelson and starts to meddle in the coverage of the paper and to try to keep the local paper that he bought from writing about his misdeeds, then you have a different problem. So it's, you know, it's different kind of complicated aspects of the same larger problem, which is the failure of this business model. Yeah, the creepy is an interesting word uh, (laughs) for what, (laughs) for that uh, phenomenon that we saw at some point because there was a must-run segment, somebody put together clips of all yeah. these different lo- local news stations across the country, all saying exactly the same words, and it was very creepy. It was petrifying. That. Yeah, yeah, it, it did make you feel. Like it didn't were, feel like America, you know. It did not feel mm-hmm. like how we think of our news media in the United States. You know, we we want to think of our news media as being independent and. Many of our news media actually are independent, but when you have when you move into the must run territory, then it's an open question, right? Yeah, I'll tell a quick story here. The place that I spend my summers is a little tiny town way up in the eastern Sierra, and they have two, I would describe them as crappy newspapers. And one of the things I notice is that as they have had gone through various struggles, particularly the one that I worked for. So I worked for a while writing uh, little articles for them about the local news, particularly the town council meetings. And as I stopped working for them and then they've had other problems, that re- that news has basically disappeared. And so, you know, I'm just really conscious of the fact that there are all these things happening at the town council level that the residents just simply don't hear about, they don't know about. And so that's just my own personal, you know, kind of anecdotal sense of, wow, there's all this stuff happening at town council that isn't, it's just not being reported. But you have gathered a number of studies in your report that show a kind of profound loss of participation in politics when there is no paper. And can you summarize some of those for us? Well, you're, you're so right, Jennifer. I mean, that intuitive sense of just kind of looking out at a local town, for example, if yours is like the one you tell, um, and just sort of feeling that sense of it just doesn't seem like people are engaging if there isn't as much that's offered for them um, to be aware of. And it was kind of a similar thing for us when we started our research, which was over a year ago. We kind of felt our way towards thinking through that. But in our research, then we clarified and confirmed a lot of really kind of troubling um, research findings that at the heart of it get at how important local reporting is as a cornerstone of our democracy, which I remember when we were drafting, it it felt kind of lofty thinking it through, but the data shows this. It shows that people, when there is a loss of local journalism, people are less likely to do a number of really critical things. They're less likely to vote, for example, which is um, confirmed in a few research studies that we found from 2014 and 2015. They're less likely to run for office. They're less politically informed. And what all of that gets at is just the importance of how local news offers us windows into civic engagement. And that when there is a dearth of that local reporting, different things happen. And 
often actually feels like flip sides of the same coin that, you know, with the loss of journalism, you know, community members are going to be less likely to engage and then government corruption is more likely to go up. Mm-hmm. And so some of the other things we saw are that government officials often conduct themselves with um, less efficiency, integrity, effectiveness when there is less local news coverage. They're also more likely to see corruption and costs increase. I know we already talked about Bell, but that's a great example just to show us all that um, you know when there is very little or no local reporting, different types of malfeasance occur by governments and even corporate malfeasance, such as environmental degradation, um, when those types of activities just go absolutely unchecked. On our end, some of what we thought about was really what are the what are the costs here? You know, the costs I don't think are abstract. They're not just, again, as I've described, that abstract sense of, well, we just don't have it. You know, that's okay. But people are really, truly less likely to know what's happening in their communities when no one even knows when a local election is occurring. Mm-hmm. And so at the very heart of it, these things, I think, are actually rooted in our democracy. And so when we see on the flip side, local media being responsive, engaged, you know, able to really connect with their communities, we actually see very tangible effects on the way then people are feeling supported and informed enough to be proactive about participating in democracy. You also found that most people are unaware of how close their local news outlets are to going under which was also true in the little town uh, where I spend my summers. What advice do you have for us as news consumers to protect our local news? Oh, I love that question. (laughs) Victoria, you want to go ahead? Well, I was just going to say that we were really, we were actually really shocked when we realized that 70% of the American public doesn't know that their local news outlets are in trouble because, you know, so many of us in the actual, you know, nonprofit world and the media world have been trying to sound the alarm for a while. Mm-hmm. And we, and we're also seeing that people have a real appetite for news and yet they don't know that it's in trouble. And I'll, I'll hand it over to Nora to talk about some things that folks can do right away. Well, you know, I think I love this question because we firmly believe at PEN America that the solutions, if there are going to be any paths to recovering and supporting local news in the future, that it is not going to be a single silver bullet that one sector can work on, Mm -hmm. but that we're going to have to look at how all of us, and I really mean all of us, whether it's philanthropy, whether it's local media and what they're doing to innovate, which we probably can talk about as well, um, whether it's communities and stakeholders that are, you know, all over the country, everyone is going to have to be a real hands-on, like all hands on deck for what we're facing. Um, And so I think through, you know, what communities think, and a lot of times they're absolutely unaware of what their local news outlet is doing, what it's going through. Frankly, in some of our work, we, we also know that anecdotally, people don't even know how to distinguish news. You know, they don't even really understand the differences between reporting and investigative pieces, you know, op-eds, research studies. There's just sort of this gulf um, in lack of understanding. And so one of the things is, 
I think it's been really wonderful in this period, which is absolutely horrible during coronavirus. But I think it's important to see how people are turning to news, which I know we already have talked about. But it's it's something that's very powerful because it's it's really bringing home that we survive and can be safe because of news and because of our local journalists. And so it it makes me excited to think about the ways that communities can begin um, taking charge of how they consume news. And there are a few ways that I think they can do it. One is call local elected officials and call state and federal officials that you know represent you and tell those officials to include the local news industry in our next stimulus. It is one of the, I think, most important pieces right now that we're going to face, that as local news outlets are being decimated because of what's happening with the coronavirus crisis, we, we absolutely need a stopgap to be able to help support them again. And there's already been one round of a federal stimulus package, which we all know about, I think. Um, it was It's being signed, I think, today. But there's going to be another round and potentially even another after that. And I think it's really critical right now that communities understand that they'll get information through their local news outlets because of those people that are in their communities continuing to do the hard work of reporting, sometimes even putting themselves and their bodies on the line and their safety. And so we're hoping to get as much support right now around this effort, advocating for local news um, as an element of our next stimulus. So that's, I think, probably the most important thing. And it's timely. I'm not sure by the time this airs, hopefully, fingers crossed, we will have gotten that element through for support in the stimulus. I think there are a few other things and and they're, you know, exciting. One is for people to join membership programs for local news outlets so that they can subscribe to what their outlets are actually reporting. And then another option is to inform local outlets of the stories that need to be told. You know, one of the things we found in our reporting and our research was the local news quote unquote crisis, the way it's playing out in different communities is, is quite varied. And sometimes there are, you know, wonderful reporters on the front lines covering certain issues, but there are then sometimes stories that just go untold. And oftentimes that is coverage related to um, communities of color, minority, and other questions around equity. And it's really a, a powerful way that community members, if they feel they're not represented in the news, should try to engage with members of their media community. And then I have one more recommendation. I, I don't want to give too much of a laundry list, but I think it's really critical um, because this one is its a bit granular. But I will say, um, I think that there's a way to donate to local news outlets, which in this moment, you know, we're all strapped. And so I think that when we come out on the other end of whatever ends up happening, there will be ways to think about and thank what our local news outlets did for us, public media, nonprofit outlets that have been really innovating and doing tremendous programming now. Um, once we're on the other side of this pandemic and the crisis around coronavirus, I think we'll really see, and I hope we see a kind of resurgence in the respect and the gratitude for what local outlets did. I can imagine that coming, particularly during this time. 
it's just a question of sustaining that going forward. So yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the very concrete uh, call to action, especially for the stimulus package. And for the second one about uh, membership, can you explain that a little bit? I wasn't sure I quite followed that. Is that just becoming a subscriber or why did you call it membership? Well, I'm happy to jump in there. So one of the things we found is that local outlets across the country have really been adapting and innovating frantically uh, and at record speed in order to survive. And the primary way that they're doing that is by trying to diversify their revenue streams so that instead of relying constantly and only on ad revenue, which is declining, that they find other streams of funding. And so some of that is coming from philanthropy from philanthropists, from wealthy individuals, but some of that, a lot of that actually is now coming from readers. And subscriptions or memberships are a little bit different. Subscriptions are essentially you pay for the service, right? You're approaching it as a product and you're paying for the product. You pay the money, you get the coverage. Memberships are much more focused on community engagement and actually developing a two-way street between your news consumers, your readers, and your reporters. So it's more like, it's almost like, I don't know, if you think about, um, you know, the way that you can sign up to be a member of a public TV station or a public radio station, it's somewhere in between Mm. a donation, but one where you can actually then get special access to reporters and give them your ideas and help them participate in crowdsourced reporting projects that they're now running, um, et cetera. So it's, it's like much more focused on engagement. So I see those things as being somewhat different. Yes, that makes sense. Now, where I live uh, most of the time near San Diego, there are several, I guess you would call them neighborhood or uh, sort of suburb papers that are owned by the San Diego Union Tribune. And just judging by how thick they are and how many people seem to be writing for them, they seem to be thriving. Is that a model that can work? So I'm really glad you mentioned the San Diego Union Tribune. Um, Nora and I have a special place in our hearts for the San Diego Union Tribune. We've done a lot of work with them. Um, PEN America has over the years. It's a really wonderful paper. I can't speak to the details of how the local papers are connected to the um, larger paper, the San Diego Union Tribune. But what I can say is that we found that one of the most important, if not the most important factor determining the survival of a local paper was to have a dedicated owner who was willing to invest major money into diversifying revenue streams for that outlet. And so the Los um, Angeles Times and the San Diego Union Tribune and all the papers that are kind of connected are owned by a billionaire inventor and investor, Patrick Sun Chung. And we're seeing the same thing happening with the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Those are all papers that are owned either by billionaires or by family media dynasties. Those papers are all doing considerably better financially than papers that are owned by massive media conglomerates, which are now increasingly owned by hedge funds. And the hedge fund's only purpose is to wring as much profit out of a of the conglomerate and out of the local papers before they move on, sell it and move on. So I would say that that I think is is a big part of it. And another big part of papers that are really doing well is investment in community engagement. So making sure that they are actually meeting the information needs of their communities, listening to their communities, um, meeting them where they are, 
and uh, engaging them in the process of newsmaking so that they understand the value of what they're paying for and so that they feel like they're getting out of the, the sort of coverage what they need in order to survive and to thrive. So I would say those are maybe the two most important pieces, community engagement and a very dedicated owner willing to invest money. You looked at some nonprofit models as you were investigating various options to save local news and some funding by foundations. And what did you conclude about that? The nonprofit model is definitely a really critical development, and it's definitely going to be part of the future of any local news ecosystem that's functional or, you know, actually working. There have been nonprofit news outlets around for a long time. People don't realize that there are many major outlets that we know and love that are nonprofits. Uh, It's just that the decimation of the for-profit business model has actually spurred uh, an explosion of nonprofit outlets. There are some for-profit outlets, uh, like the Salt Lake City Tribune, I believe, that have gone from for-profit to nonprofit. Oh, which is really a new development that happened within the last year and others are following suit. Um, there are others that have you know, started out from the very beginning as nonprofits. They're doing great work. Out of more than 230 nonprofit newsrooms in the US, nearly three quarters have launched since 2008. And together they employ over 3000 people and generate over $450 million in revenue. So it's a big shift. Um, more than 60% of them are now focused on local, state, and regional coverage, and they're doing investigative, explanatory, and analytical reporting. So that's the reporting that we desperately need. However, there are major challenges with a shift to foundation funding and a shift to the nonprofit model, and those are challenges of scale, reach, equity, and sustainability. In all of the philanthropic funding, the foundation funding for journalism and media between 2010 and 2015, which is the most recent study we have, less than 5% went to local outlets. The rest went to major national outlets. And nonprofits in just a few states received almost all of the funding. So the Midwest, the Mountain West, the Southwest, the South got very little foundation funding. And just 2% actually went to support local ethnic and uh, minority-focused media outlets. So while the you know, there's so many good things to say about the ways in which foundations have stepped up to try to save local journalism. You know, there's just not enough money yet in the system, and that money isn't reaching some of the parts of the country and some of the communities that need it most. You mentioned at the very beginning about um, reconceptualizing local news as a public good instead of a commercial product, which I think is a very good way of of describing the overall thesis of your report. And so if we were to think of it as a public good, what agency do you think could be or agencies could be situated to fund it? Well, I'll jump in and say, and then I'll hand it over to Nora. I'll just jump in and say that we're arguing that we need a major influx of public funding for local journalism. Most pressingly right this minute, we need local journalism to be included in any future stimulus because there's almost no money in the current stimulus for local journalism. Uh, But in terms of long-term thinking, we have kind of two options. We can either reform and reinvest much more money into the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is our existing public media arm organization, or what we're proposing is actually a new national endowment for local journalism to be created. And I'll hand it over to Nora to talk about how some of that might be you know, thought through. Sure. 
In terms of the agencies, um, you know, part of what we're hoping to do at this early stage is uh, a couple of things. One, create a new narrative around journalism as a public good for really, frankly, coalition and community building to create the kind of political will for people to really see why local journalism matters. And ironically, I think we're all now becoming more aware than ever um, that that is, is so critical for all of us and for our livelihoods. And so in the early stages, our priority is to try to at least create that political traction with Congress to think through what the mechanics would be of what we might get funded down the line. I think we're kind of far, uh, I have to say, far from being able to um, say we're ready to hit the ground running with whatever agency would be charged with giving out the types of funds that we would envision. It's early days. It is. And when I say early, I don't mean we're a decade away because that's far too long. But I think we're at least a year away, um, maybe a couple. Mm -hmm. And so in the meantime, what we've envisioned is a commission that should at least begin and be tasked with investigating um, sort of with the help and the leadership of actual local news media leaders and experts from you know, our research community and our nonprofit and civil society communities, um, for them to be charged with being able to think through what a mechanism could look like with enough safeguards and uh, what we call these guardrails to provide Congress the kind of path towards feeling comfortable with creating a public funding option. Um, because I think a lot of times what we get are questions around, well, what would public funding for journalism really look like and how could we safeguard it? And I think those are absolutely fantastic questions that we have to grapple with. And in grappling with that, I think we can actually move the needle much closer to reaching some kind of vision of what the mechanism would actually look like that would be charged with ultimately funding local journalism and national outlets maybe. But in the meantime, um, I think, you know, there's sort of this first step that we can take. And so we're very excited about moving that work forward. I have to say there have been tremendous efforts across the country from ground, uh, you know, local and, and grassroots organizations and policy advocates to think through how can we make something to envision local news as a public good, something that's palatable and even widely supported. And, you know, that's why I, I kind of started this question with, we need to change the narrative and we need to do that very boldly and, and quickly because time is running out. And I think we all at this point in this conversation know that, but it's something that leaders really need to take upon themselves then and, and really, you know, bring a kind of call to arms to our federal officials. Yeah. It's a funny situation. You think of media and reporting being supported by public funding and how that has worked in other countries. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've always been pretty biased in this country toward private money. But now we see with Sinclair Broadcasting what you get with that, or even if some of our quote-unquote benevolent billionaires decided that they weren't particularly interested in pursuing a particular uh, pursuit of reporting that might involve their own misdeeds. And so, but I think it's pretty common in the U.S. for us to worry about our media becoming controlled by the government. So as the commission was doing its work, give us an example of how you think that might work to safeguard the reporting 
if it was funded by public monies? Sure. I mean, you know, there are numerous other national endowments and agencies tasked with supporting other sectors. Um, And I know that one of the early knee-jerk reactions people uh, that we are, you know, on the receiving end of is people saying, well, state-funded media, that is a slippery slope. And people are really reticent, as you say, to buy into that. But numerous examples abound where we have created and, and tasked national endowments with being able to support sectors like the arts, like education, like the humanities. And, and science. And science, yes, oh, which is a great, in this yeah, moment, right. exactly. a great one. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so part of what we've done is in envisioning a commission that could at least investigate what a mechanism would look like mm-hmm. is think through how it happened decades ago when the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was created, knowing that there was also this kind of really interesting moment where uh, local, I'm sorry, where leaders in media and education and and sort of administrative ability came together to think about how we could create what ultimately became the Carnegie Commission to really drill down on what the real specifics would be on how a commission could effectively make sure that media was independent. And I think at this point, we would need something that would frankly be like a renewed version of that, but adapted to these times where we're looking at what journalists on the ground say they would need. We're looking at what publishers are saying and how they're behaving now, bringing a diverse group of those experts together. The specifics of which I think are going to have to be something that we look to our federal officials to support and to really be able to sound the alarm and say, this type of funding is not a concern. We're not encroaching somehow into this space of state-funded media, but we are giving money for outlets and for other models to run with and do what they want. I do just want to jump in and offer a little bit of context um, because I, I spent a lot of time when I was working on this report talking to journalists who were horrified that I was proposing, uh, that we were as PEN America proposing public funding for journalism. And it was very much exactly as you said, Jennifer, this kind of allergic reaction, this knee-jerk reaction. Oh no, but you know, public media is state media and they're not the same thing. And it's really important to, to understand that. So there's several points I want to make. The first one is that the U.S. government has supported journalism indirectly through postal subsidies, ads, and public notices and tax breaks since this country was founded in the 1700s. And then we funded directly through the Corporation Public Broadcasting since the 1960s. And people consistently in this country say that the most trusted news outlet in the country is, you know, NPR and PBS. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 36 U.S. states that support public uh, media. Mm-hmm. The other thing to keep in mind is that the five countries that are consistently ranked highest on press freedom indices, like Freedom House's annual you know, index of press freedom, are Norway, the Netherlands, Sweden, Belgium, and Denmark. Those are also the five countries that heavily subsidize their news media more than any other countries in the world. <laughs> the U.S. right now is is ranked in the 30s on the press freedom lists, unfortunately, you know, despite all of our private support for journalism. Right. And the other thing I'd say is that we actually fund public media at a rate that's something like 30 times less compared to other developing democracies per person, just to give you a sense of scale. 
Um, so I think that we're a free expression organization. We fervently believe in the importance of keeping of keeping government off of the backs of journalists and newsrooms. But we're just saying that it has been done elsewhere successfully. And if we're going to try it here in the States, we have to do exactly what Nora is saying. We have to have a commission that really thinks through mechanically how to put up firewalls between public funding and actual editorial. But that's already happening in newsrooms in relation to private funds. So those mechanisms exist already. There was an interesting article in the New York Times about the Seattle Times and their coverage of COVID-19. This was, it seems like a very long time ago, but it probably was only 10 days ago or so, whereas the Seattle Times, you know, was really finding themselves in the midst of a hotbed of COVID-19. And so it was all hands on deck and all the reporters were out gathering information as fast as they could. So it was kind of an interesting article that we had a national press covering um, more local media. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but I was curious if you had any comments about that article and their coverage. Uh, yeah, I absolutely read that article. And that article actually is what really helped to shape our thinking about the need to include local journalism in our stimulus plans mm. during the pandemic. Because what's happening at the Seattle Times, it's a really interesting case. So their journalists immediately slapped into gear. And they were, you know, risking their physical safety and their well-being to get out there and report and to cover working all hours, trying to juggle working remotely, just like the rest of us are, or actually going out into the field and putting themselves at risk. And they are working at half capacity compared to what they were several years ago. Just like the rest of the local papers across the country, they are, they have lost about 50% of their staff in recent years. And so they're doing all of this amazing stuff, but with way fewer uh, staff. And it's playing out, you know, across the country. And I think what's amazing about the Seattle, Seattle Times is that they've actually, they're one of the outlets that have done the most impressive and innovative stuff in terms of diversifying their revenue streams. They're a model in the industry for how you can push back against the local news crisis and find other places to make money in order to keep your work afloat. And they're still at half staff and they have been speaking, you know, pretty publicly about the fact that they're deeply concerned about what's going to happen to their finances right now. So if they're in that pickle, you know, imagine what's happening to other outlets across the country. And I was really thrilled that the New York times, which is an outlet that's essentially a national outlet held up the work, raised the work up, of a regional outlet in such a you know, clear way, because we need, as Nora said, to change the narrative about the value of local journalism right now as an essential public service. I know things look really bleak, especially right in the middle of a pandemic. What bright spots do you see potentially in the future, especially after another recession? I'm happy to jump in. Um, I, you know, I feel strangely invigorated by what I'm seeing mm -hmm. right now from our journalist colleagues. And I think there is, there is sort of a history, not even on the local news crisis aspect, but on the, the larger issue of press, press freedom, what news means in the United States. I think people have vacillated between either apathy or distrust. And this new invigorated interest and need for local coverage in communities means that people are turning to and supporting journalism in a way that, you know, I don't think we could have created, frankly, in other contexts, just with our own advocacy as an organization that works on the front lines of this. 
And so what we've noticed is actually a sort of you know, resurgence of support and excitement to see something like the New York Times covering local efforts, I find really wonderful. Um, I think that above all, what we're seeing is something that we're calling journalists being first responders right now. They are on the front lines, stepping up. And they've had a long history of stepping up, but they're now, I think, receiving the kind of credit that they have always deserved. And I'm honestly so excited. I'm even honored to be working with some of these journalists. You know, over the next several weeks, one of the things we're doing is we're spotlighting the journalists, whether they are student journalists, whether they are White House correspondents, whether they are journalists in various communities where we work and hold typical, quote unquote, events (laughs) that are now moving digital. We are trying to spotlight their voices and spotlight what a difficult time it is. And that in the face of this tremendous adversity, uncertainty, and kind of existential crisis, journalists are coming forward and and they're really staying the course. And it's just really inspiring. Oh, that's really cool. I would also, well, I would also add that there has been the most incredible flurry of innovation and adaptation happening across the country among local news outlets for the last 15 years. You know, they are not taking this lying down. There are all kinds of new business models cropping up. There are all kinds of experiments. And there are a lot of outlets that have emerged to actually better serve communities than some of the legacy outlets have historically done. So the issue isn't so much the will, like the will is there. The issue is that there's just not enough money in the wider system. And that is where um, this kind of awakening uh, and kind of growing realization, which we hope, you know, we're seeing in the public about how important local news is, we're hoping that that provides enough of a groundswell to then generate more philanthropic and um, public and private support for local journalism. Well, again, I want to thank you both for writing this report. It was so enlightening and for coming on the show. And I know I have to let you go. But before I do, uh, is there anything either of you or both of you would like to share with the listeners about how they can follow your work or learn more? Well, uh, there are so many ways, but I'm thinking of the most targeted ways. And I would say two. One is the easiest, which is following us on social media. Um, Like on Twitter, we're just Pen America. On all of our platforms, we are. It provides often a real-time update on the issues that we're tracking. And right now we're seeing um, really new and interesting emerging threats to free expression and to local news. And we're hoping that communities help wake up to that crisis. And then we're also, of course, always providing those updates with our daily digest of news. And so we would say sign up for what we call our DARE. And you can do that on pen.org. It's right at the top of our organizational website. Once you sign up, one of the best ways that you can then stay engaged is by fighting for journalists and local news to be included as in part of the next stimulus package. So if you sign up, we will give you those alerts and those opportunities to stay engaged because we, it really cannot be underestimated how important people's voices are right now in sounding the alarm and pushing our elected officials to be held accountable for this. Anything from you, Victoria? Well, I would say for folks who, it's, I almost hesitate to say this because there are a lot of folks who are going to be in straightened economic circumstances right now. For folks who have the resources, we're a membership organization and we 
uh, stay in very close touch with our members. We have writers, journalists, publishers, editors, translators all across the country who belong to Pen America. There are over 7,500 of us. Um, so consider joining us. And if you have the resources and, and you have a local paper or a local news outlet, it doesn't have to be a newspaper that you respect and trust, offer them your financial support as well. All right. Thank you both for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so we much. We're so glad to join you. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.